morning. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge Hunter Murphy, the head of panel today. Um, with me to my right, Judge John Airwood. To my left, Judge Allison Riggs. Um, also today, uh, thank Mr. Sanders for opening court for us today, and our court martial, Richard Remillard. We have one case on this morning, uh, State versus, uh, I believe it's MOA, is that? MOA. Um, and that's 22-839, and we will be with the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor, and good morning. May it please the court. My name is Benjamin Cole. I have the privilege and the honor to be here today on behalf of the appellant, Mr. Wang Mua. I would like to- Sir, if you could, I can hear you okay, but I'm not sure how well that mic's picking you up. <coughs> Still battling a bit of a bug, though. I would like to reserve 12 minutes for my rebuttal, please. Okay. This court has a duty in cases of this type involving the Fourth Amendment. Right? This court has a duty to be watchful for the constitutional rights of the citizen and to be watchful against the stealthy encroachment on those rights. Right? That is what the Supreme Court of the United States has said. In cases of this type, the courts have a duty to be watchful for the constitutional rights of the citizen and against the stealthy encroachment thereon. Right, that's Coolidge versus New Hampshire, cited in my memo of additional authority. Right, there are two ways of resolving this case, two different analytical scenarios, A and B. Both of those scenarios are very simple. Each only requires the court to answer one question. One factual, one legal. And in both scenarios, a ruling for the government would amount to the type of stealthy encroachment on the rights of the constitutional, on the constitutional rights of the citizen that the US Supreme Court has warned us about. Right, in the first scenario, in scenario A, the question to be answered is a factual one. Did Sergeant Tryon's words to my client, right, gotta slow down, 35's 35, right? Do those words amount to the oral issuance of a warning ticket for speeding, right, of the type that would signal the end of a routine traffic stop like this? A ruling for the defense on this issue would be depositive for reasons I'll get to shortly. But the law that governs this question is, of course, very well established, right? Is there competent evidence in the record to support such a finding? Right, and competent evidence, of course, is evidence that a reasonable mind might accept to support the factual determination. It is not possible to say that a reasonable mind would accept the evidence as supporting a finding that that type of oral warning ticket was issued because those six words, right, gotta slow down, 35-35, right? Those are the type of words that any officer would say to any driver during any traffic stop, regardless of how that officer may decide to end that stop, or indeed, whether that officer had even already decided how he was going to end that stop. Right? Gotta slow down, 35-35, right? You can imagine, following that, an officer could say anything else. He could say, well, here's your ticket, your court date is such and such, or, well, 35-35, gotta slow down, I'm letting you off with a warning, 
Council, why, I, I want to go back to something you just said. Why is the question, why is the issue of whether the original reason for the stop had, had ended, why is that dispositive for your case? Why couldn't this court see that, um, okay, assuming arguendo, the, the traffic stop ended and he was let off with a warning, he was detained and delayed further, was questioned about his probation status in the middle of a dark, on the side of a dark road at night, in the middle of the night with police there. Tell me why you think that first question is dispositive. It's dispositive if the court agrees with the defense, Your Honor. If the court disagrees with the defense, then we move on to scenario okay. B, which I'll get to. But it's dispositive if the court agrees with the defense, because if no such warning ticket was issued, right, then that means that the mission, the original purpose of the traffic stop, the traffic stop itself, never ended, right? It was a traffic stop for speeding, so without any kind of ticket, whether warning ticket, actual ticket, the original purpose never ended, right? There's no dispute. It cannot be disputed. The search had nothing to do with the original mission of the traffic stop. No one is going to tell you that evidence of speeding was going to be found locked away in the glove compartment or something, right? So we know that this, the request in the search extended the time of the stop because it had no relation to the original mission of the stop. It was necessarily improper, right? And therefore, the consent that was given during that unlawful extension was necessarily tainted, quote unquote. That's the language in State v. Jackson and State v. Icard cited in my brief. The, uh, the consent was tainted by the unlawful nature of that extension. Right, but going back to the factual question, then it's got to slow down. 35 is 35, right? Again, that's the kind of thing one would expect to hear regardless of how the traffic stop ended, right? It's a tr nothing about those six words indicates that Sergeant Tryon had decided to resolve the, resolve the investigation one way to the exclusion of another, right? It's a coin flip, right? There's two choices, a real ticket or a warning ticket, heads or tails, right? Just because he said those words would give no reasonable person any reason to believe that one outcome had been chosen to the exclusion of the other. Well, now, counsel, you say there's only two outcomes. It's either a real ticket or a warning ticket. Isn't the third, yeah, I stopped you, you're going too fast, don't do it again and go on, and there's nothing issued. Isn't that also a possible scenario, and doesn't that happen all the time? Well, I, I would, yes, Your Honor, absolutely. And I, I would classify, I would put that under the heading of warning ticket, whether we're talking but about a ticket. A, denotes something in writing, does it not? I it could be a warning, it could be a warning ticket, it could be a ticket. And, and that's why I would say an orally issued warning ticket, Your Honor, of course, we could say an orally issued warning, certainly those happen, I've received those. Uh, but the fundamental point is still the same, is whether the warning issued, however we want to classify it, whether it was the type of warning that would have signaled the end of the traffic stop, right? And we can take those words in isolation, gotta slow down 35-35, right? But I think when we consider them in context, it becomes even clearer that no reasonable person would interpret those words as being the issuance of a warning of that type. Because, you know, the facts are very clear set out in the video. It took mere seconds for Sergeant Tryon to return the document and say these words, right? He had the stop had began, they approach the car, flashlights drawn, shining inside, they take the documents, 
from the driver and the passenger. Sergeant Tryon returns to his car, runs the checks, comes back two minutes later, approaches the open driver's side door and says nothing other than, come out and talk to me. It takes about five, six seconds to stand up and get out. Immediately he returns the documents, orders my client to walk to the rear of the vehicle, which takes another two seconds, and then he issues this statement about got to slow down 35-35, right? If that were an actual warning of the type that signaled the end of this traffic stop, a reasonable person would think, well, why did he just pull me out of my car, right? That took seconds. He walked up, my window was open. If he was really trying to issue me a warning to end this traffic stop, why wouldn't he be just handed my documents through the open window and said those six words through the open window and everybody goes on their way, right? It makes no sense in the context in which they were uttered for those words to amount to an orally issued warning for speeding. <clears throat> and so to rule the opposite way, to say that yes, that, that was an oral warning, that signaled those six words in that context, signaled the end of the traffic stop for a reasonable person, right? That is the type of stealthy encroachment on the Fourth Amendment that the Supreme Court was warning us about. Because right? that type of ruling would make it easier for the state to prevail in cases of this type by lowering the bar by which the state needs to prove that a Fourth Amendment seizure has ended. I am aware of no case, the, the state has cited none, right, in which this sort of similarly vague statement, I right, gotta slow down, 35, 35, right, was determined to be the type of warning that signaled the end of a traffic stop, right? So a ruling for the state on this issue would provide a blueprint for officers like Sergeant Tryon, right? Officers who, by their own admission, ask drivers, order drivers out of their car, not for a legitimate purpose, right? Not because they had safety concerns, right? His testimony was clear. That was not a concern here. Not because he had questions about the speeding, right? But because he wanted to ask him about unrelated matters and hopefully softly coerce him into consenting to the search. Now you say the state has offered no case that this is. Do you have cases on the other side? That? That, that, it's, that it's not. Do you have a case that you say that yes, the state's uh, not uh, offered? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. I would uh, jump ahead to my closer, uh, Arizona versus Johnson from the U.S. Supreme Court. Normally, this is a quote, 555 U.S. at 333. Normally, the stop ends when the police have no further need to control the scene and inform the driver and passengers that they are free to leave. Right? So moving on to the second scenario, right? If the court disagrees with us on the factual question about a warning having been issued, right? Then we move on to the question of whether at the point at which consent was requested and given, would a reasonable person have felt free to leave, right? To turn his back on Sergeant Tryon, get back into his car, while his partner is still shining a flashlight into that car and looking inside, as he had been from the very beginning of the stop, and drive away. When the officer was, the other officer, shining the flashlight. Yes. What was his position in regards to the location of the automobile? Is that clear on the video? Yes, Your Honor. He, the whole time the partner is standing immediately adjacent to the passenger seat, front passenger seat. The passenger, from the beginning up until the time the search began, the passenger was, well, 
both passenger, both driver and passenger were seated uh, still in the car. But he wasn't standing in any way that was, at least from my memory of the video, would have impeded the driver from pulling straight ahead, correct? No, he was standing to the side, right next to the uh, passenger side door, shining his flashlight and looking into the car the entire time. One question I've gotten, you, you might be getting into this, is this idea of engaging somebody in a public place. At what point is the middle of a public street or highway a public place to engage somebody in conversation? I'm just thinking if somebody is not, if he's not otherwise dealing with the police, he's not standing in the middle of the street having a conversation with somebody, right? And what, at what point does that come into our analysis that this isn't really a, a public place where somebody usually engages somebody in, in conversation? Well, I agree, Your Honor. The law is well established. An officer can approach anybody in a public place and engage in conversation. But I don't think that rule factors into the analysis here uh, because this and the analysis here starts with a Fourth Amendment seizure. It starts with traffic stop, which is, you know, by definition, a Fourth Amendment seizure. Right? So the relevant question is whether that seizure ended, right? and the state, I believe, is contending that, yes, it ended upon the return of the documents and the statement of, got to slow down, 35-35, right? right? And if the, if the court agrees with that, that, it, that the initial seizure ended, the traffic stop seizure ended at that point, then we move on to the question of whether, despite the end of the traffic stop, the detention was still extended based on the totality of the circumstances. Based I, I don't know if this is where Judge Murphy was going, but wouldn't being pulled over on the side of the road in, in the middle of night, wouldn't that go to whether or not consent was freely and voluntarily given? That is, you're not someplace you're comfortable, you want to be. Does a reasonable person then does that impact the, the factors that the courts have given us about how we determine whether or not um, consent for a search is, is freely and voluntarily given? Well, I, Your Honor, I respect that. I would say the issue is, the, the legal issue is whether a reasonable person would have felt free to leave the scene, right? Because that's how we define whether the, the seizure ended, right? And if the seizure, because if the seizure never ended, the consent was necessarily tainted by that seizure, right? The, 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 the consent was necessarily invalid, right? That's Jackson, that's Icard discussed in my brief. And so when asked, answering the question of whether a reasonable person would feel, to, feel free to leave, we have to look at the totality of the circumstances, right? And I think this is where the state kind of tries to blur the line a bit in its brief, right? It tries to say, well, the return of the documents, that's enough, seizure ended. Well, no, right? Return of the documents, just like the time of day and location, is one of the factors that goes into the totality of the circumstances analysis. Well, the, the state cites the United States versus Mendenhall. Can you uh, address that? Uh, that case from the top of my memory, Your Honor, no, to be frank. Uh, I'm sorry that I could not. Uh, Mendenhall. I believe that's the Los Angeles airport case. Yes. Talking about the various factors. The totality of the, well, I think, yeah, that's the case that sets the, the standard for, you know, it sets the rule that says we must look at the totality of the circumstance. And Mendenhall sets forth a series of things, as I recall, about what you look at. And can you address, what? it sounds like you're not prepared to address those 
Well, I think the, the, relevant, the relevant factors here are those that we see in the video, right? The, the video speaks for itself in terms of the factual circumstances that go into the totality analysis, right? We have the traffic stop at night. We have one officer who, from through the entire relevant period, is shining his flashlight into that car, right? Controlling the scene from his mere presence, shining his flashlight into the car, continually looking into the car. Right? We have the timing of the exchange. Right? The, the Sergeant Tryon orders my client out of the car, within seconds returns the documents, makes a statement about 35 35, and immediately pivots to his rapid fire questioning about where have you lived, probation, what county, supervised, unsupervised, bam, 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 rapid firing questions. You, as the reasonable person, you have just been ordered out of your car. Less than 30 seconds have passed. Approximately 30 seconds have passed. You were ordered out of your car for one specific purpose. Right? This is what Sergeant Tryon told us. Come out and talk to me. Right? You've been ordered to come out and talk to this officer. That officer is doing exactly that. He is talking to you. 30 seconds have passed. He is still talking to you in a rapid fire, sort of cross-examining method. Question, question, question. One word answer, one word answer, one word answer. So how, at that particular point where he pivots and asks for consent, how would a reasonable person know that, yes, this is the point at which this officer is done with me? He ordered me out to talk to him, and now he must be done. I, as a reasonable person, can know that. So I, as a reasonable person, can know that now is the point in time which, which I can turn my back on him and walk away safely, right, and not risk committing the crime of disobeying the lawful command of an officer, right? That's why the Supreme Court tells us in Arizona v. Johnson, right? A stop normally ends when there's no more need to control the scene and when the officers tell the people they are free to go. Does a person on probation consent in advance to any kind of search requested by his or her probation officer? By his probation officer, right? Yeah, that's, that's a standard uh, default term for probation, you know, search warrantless search at any time of the place uh, of the person or home by the probation officer. And because there was no probation officer present, I don't believe that's relevant here. So wouldn't it be reasonable for someone who is on probation who's had to give, in, to give that consent for a probation officer to also maybe think it applies to police officers as well? Well, it do, does not have to give No, I understand. Yeah. But my point is, is if if you believe that you have to give that consent, how does that impact our inquiry about whether consent is freely and voluntarily given? Well, Your Honor, I think the question, the, the standard comes down to the reasonable person, right? So what would a reasonable person think in those circumstances? Uh, so I, I, candidly, I think it would be a stretch to say that a reasonable person might sort of be operating under that sort of mistake of law. Um, but I don't think that, I think the facts that we have in black and white on the video are more than enough to show that a reasonable person in this situation, at that precise point when the consent is requested and given, that that person would not have felt free to turn his back on the officer who was still engaging him in conversation, get back into his car and drive away while the other officer is still shining a flashlight into that car and thereby still controlling the scene. We'll give you a little bit more time because our, our questions, but I just want to kind of follow up where, where Judge Riggs is. And 
you know, in considering a reasonable person and what their belief would be given the situation, do we consider it a reasonable person just generally or a reasonable person in defendant situation who has the knowledge that he is on probation and he's being asked questions about his probation? Um, he's in this encounter with law enforcement while on probation. Do we, does that come at all into our totality of circumstances? Not necessarily the subjective belief of this defendant, but the objective fact that he is a probationer, um, just as we might consider someone's age or anything like that. Is that a factor that we need to be taking into consideration at all for our totality of circumstances analysis? To be frank, I don't know what the law would say to that question. That would be something that I would have to, for the research, I would just be guessing if I you know, chose A or B to answer your question there. Uh, but I think in terms of you know, this boiling down to a reasonable person standard, right? both issues, right? the factual issue is, is there competent evidence? That's evidence a reasonable mind would accept. You know, the second issue, you know, whether a reasonable person would feel free to leave in the circumstances, they both require us to ask what would this hypothetical reasonable person do. And I think that dovetails back to the guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court right, that tells us in cases of this type, right, the court's duty is to be watchful for the constitutional rights of the citizen. Right? So if the hypothetical person is you know, on the fence, so to speak, I think in light of that guidance, right, the proper course of action is to protect the constitutional rights of the citizen and to be watchful against the type of stealthy encroachment on those rights that a ruling for the state would represent in this case. Thank you, Judge. If there are no further questions, with that, I've reserved the remainder of my time. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the state. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, my name is Kristen Euchre and I'm a Special Assist Deputy uh, Attorney General with the Department of Justice and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to start by addressing three points that were raised by opposing counsel's argument. The first is the objective nature of Fourth Amendment inquiries, the issue of the return of the documents, uh, that that is generally uh, signals the end of the stop, and uh, that there are actually additional questions of law here for this court to consider, not merely whether the defendant was free to leave. Um, starting with the objective nature of the Fourth Amendment inquiry, um, what is important here is that this court's decision is not controlled by what Sergeant Tryon believed or what the defendant believed. What is controlling is what an objective officer in these situations would believe and what an objective person in these situations would believe. Um, that's what, what impact does the objective officer's point of view have on anything? Are we just focused on the reasonable person if they would have felt free to leave? Um, two, two. Two factors, Your Honor. Uh, in that way, um, about whether a reasonable person would feel free to leave. But secondly, um, whether there existed uh, reasonable belief that the defendant was armed and 
potentially dangerous to the officer such that he could frisk the defendant and the lungeable area of his vehicle under Michigan v. Long. He didn't frisk them, frisk him though, did he? he? He did, Your Honor. He did? Yes. And what was the basis, the reasonable basis for justifying that? Um, the fact that the defendant was currently on probation, which heightens the risk that the defendant would do something to avoid um, detection of any other crimes. The, the fact that he has a sentence hanging over his head that could be activated if he's found doing any other crime of any kind, really. Um, and additionally, the fact that the thing he's on probation for is attempted trafficking of methamphetamine by transportation as well as carrying a concealed gun and altering um, or removing the serial, uh, serial number of the gun, um, as well as some other felony drug charges. Um, those are all issues that defendant stipulated to in the record. I believe it's on, um, let's see. It's on his prior record level worksheet, which is on page 37 of the record. Um, is it the state's position that a reasonable person on probation would feel free to leave and not consent to a search when being questioned about his probation status? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, there, was, there was nothing in that conversation that would lead anyone to believe that they had to consent. Um, the officer was just asking him if he was doing what he was supposed to do on probation and where it was and then asked him if he would consent to a search. And now, can you refresh my recollection as to when the pat-down happened? Sure. Um, Specifically, can you address whether it happened before or after he returned the documents to him? Sure. Um, so the Officer, after having the initial encounter with the defendant and getting his documents and going back to his car and running the records, he then walks back up to the defendant's car, um, asks him to get out of the car. They walk back to the back of between the two cars. The officer immediately hands him back his documents, says, here's your stuff. Um, and then he says the, the, the discussion about the speeding, about how he needs to slow down. And then he says, the officer moves into, he says, all right, I see you've got some charges in the past, you're on probation, the defendant agrees, yes, you're squared away, um, all these little, these things. And then he says, hey man, you have anything on you or in the car that I should be worried about? The defendant says no, and he says, may I pat you down? Well, so doesn't that go to the fact that when you, when he gave him the documents back and talked to him, doesn't that go to the fact that He's then asked to pat him down that he's not free to leave and that an objective person would not feel free to leave if the officer's just asked to pat you down and then goes through a series of questions. And one of those series of questions is, can I search your car? Um, your Honor, there, there are two alternative arguments. I think that... Neither of which cut for the state, I believe. But I'll be happy to listen to you tell me. Sure. Um, so, the defendant has been told that he needs to slow down, he has his documents back, and this court, or actually our Supreme Court in State Behind, this, the second opinion, um, held that generally returning the documents ends the traffic stop. Uh, there's nothing else holding him there. But, ask, but then asking him immediately thereafter to pat him down, that 
throws that theory out the window that he's free to leave, doesn't it? It's not immediately thereafter, but it is, I think it's about 17 seconds or so, Your Honor. Um, That's pretty immediate. Sure, sure. Um, but it, it doesn't throw it out the window because he said, may I pat you down? There's nothing to indicate that the defendant can't say no. He's not handcuffed. There's only one officer that he's dealing with. The other officer is behind but him. But he's asking him to get out of the car and come to the back of it and says, then may I pat you down. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. Which um, our Supreme, the United States Supreme Court said in MIMS that the getting out of the vehicle is something that can be done as a matter of course, and it is done to enhance officer safety because for two reasons. Number one, it allows the officer to more easily observe what the defendant is doing. And then secondly, because they can have their conversation in a safer location where your honors might have noticed on the video, the, the defendant's car is parked just in the lane of travel essentially. And so the officer, in order to speak to the defendant at the driver's side window, is standing in the middle of the road. But none of those cases have they given the documents back, have they? No, Your Honor. To pat down, get out of the car, pat down. No, Your Honor. In none of those cases have they given the documents back, thereby making the person feel free they can leave. No, Your Honor. Those, those are two different questions, though, whether he's free to leave or whether the officer can pat him down. And frankly, the officer can pat him down even if he is free to leave. That's what Arizona v. Johnson and that's what uh, Michigan v. Long stand for, which is that even if they are done, they are allowed to verify that this person is not dangerous before allowing them to re-enter the vehicle. Michigan v. Long says that explicitly. Didn't the officer testify that the reason he asked Mr. Muo to get out of the car was for privacy, not safety? Your Honor, that's, that's one way I guess you could interpret it. He doesn't really say it's not for safety. He says it's for safety and or privacy concerns. And he said that he was worried about privacy issues with this defendant because of the other passenger in the car. But again, the standard here is an objective standard. It doesn't matter what the, the officer what his reasons were for doing it, the, the, the question is whether a reasonable officer um, was justified in, in acting this way. And MIMS says yes uh, for asking him to get out for literally no reason other than to enhance the officer's safety in the, in the ways that MIMS discusses. Um, and then... Um, Let me ask this, because I... I guess this seems brand new to me as an argument this morning. It made the states realize that maybe they don't stand a good shot with the, the end of the stop and are, are raising this well, even if it continued on to a stop. Was that argued by the state at the trial level? I have not checked the transcript for that part. No, of Your Honor, it was not. And there's no findings of fact in the order that support that, correct? Um, the findings of fact do support it in that the um, well, first of all, there was no contradictory evidence in this case. There's no finding that a frisk was being made for officer safety purposes and that the, the encounter was still going on for further investigation or to further engage him. No, Your Honor. No, there was no finding to that effect. Um, but the, our Supreme Court's decisions in Blackwell and Austin 
state that the reason that the issue on appeal is whether the ruling was correct, not whether the reason given for the ruling was correct. And the conclusions of law are reviewed de novo on appeal anyway. So if there had been a conclusion of law to that effect, this court would have been reviewing it de novo uh, regardless. So the issue is just whether the record supports. But I, I guess my concern from a due process standard for the defendant on appeal is if the state files a brief doesn't raise this issue and then only gets to raise this issue before us because they think of it the weekend before oral argument, how does that give the defendant time to prepare to rebut that argument? It's Your one thing if we, I know our case law says we can make it up on our own, but if, you, if the state gets a second bite of the apple, how does that provide the defendant with due process during the appeal process? Your Honor, it's not a second bite at the apple. Um, there's no requirement that the state even make any arguments in its brief. The only reason the state has to file a brief is so that for the privilege of arguing before you today, um, the, the, the state made, the argument should have been included in the brief for the state, Your Honor, is, is the upshot of what I'm trying to say here. Um, but the fact that it wasn't doesn't change the fact that what the officer did was objectively reasonable and did not violate the Fourth Amendment. So it's the state's position that they can make any argument they wish to make opposing defendant's position, whether or not they raise it in the brief, whether or not they've cited any cases for it or any of that. Is that state's position? Your Honor, the state has cited cases for it. The Memorandum of Additional Authority cites these cases. Um, the but aren't Memorandum of Additional Authority supposed to be normally used to cite other cases that support the state's argument that they've already made in the brief? Isn't that the purpose of Memorandum of Additional Authority under the rules? I don't know that there is a purpose stated in the rule, Your Honor. Um, I don't have the rule in front of me right now. I apologize. Um, I agree, Your Honor, that would be a much more useful way to use the memorandum of additional authority, especially because Your Honors do not have the benefit of the, the written argument to, to kind of step through each analytical uh, part of the argument. But because if you file for me a memorandum of additional authority and I pull that case and I look at it and I look at your brief and I say, I don't know what argument, you say it's going to argument two, but I don't see anything in argument two that case X applies to, then how am I supposed to know you're going to argue that here? Um, I, don't, I don't know that you are supposed to know <laughs> that I'm gonna argue it, I, I, I agree. And what does the, and I'm just trying to get to the, the technical parts of this, and I'm sorry about what a memorandum of additional authority does and what it entitles you to do that when you haven't made the argument in your brief to begin with. The, the rule about memorandum of additional authority just says if there are additional authorities that are relevant, I, I, that they can be cited. I, I understand your, your Honor's point, and that is obviously the better and best practice for, for using them. Um, but the fact of the matter stands that the, the case here, the record here supports this argument and 
it is a valid basis upon which this court may affirm the judgments against the defendant. Um, and defendant does have an opportunity to address the argument because he gets a rebuttal, and I think he has 10 minutes, so I'm sure we'll hear something from him. Well, and, and just and follow up on where Judge Airwood is, and I think, um, you know, I hate asking questions that I haven't researched um, and prepared, and that's one reason um, we have the briefing before oral argument, but in the, the event that we think the rules have been violated in a substantial way here, what sanctions are available against the state under our appellate rules? Uh, when, when the state's serving as, as appellee, um, it's not like a, an appeal can be dismissed, whereas if an appellant violates the appellate rules, what, what are the sanctions available for an appellee, um, and especially the state, violating the appellate rules? Your Honor, I'm not aware of any rules, appellate rules that the state has violated in this case, so it's difficult for me to really answer that. But I, I don't know that there, I mean, the, the main sanction I could see this court imposing would be uh, ruling against the state. I, I don't know that there is another sanction available. Right. Well, this is, isn't it a potential sanction that we could not consider that argument if it wasn't properly raised and you're trying to raise something through a mem uh, memorandum of additional authority that doesn't Well, I'm raising it in oral argument, not through the memorandum of additional authority, um, which is what I'm, I'm trying to. But aren't oral arguments meant to supplement the briefing, not to replace the briefing necessarily? I don't know what the oral arguments are meant for. I, I view them as the opportunity for me to hear the court's con concerns and to try and persuade you to my, um, my side of the issue. But de defendant couldn't raise something in oral argument that they haven't briefed, could they? No, Your Honor, because the defendant- and Why isn't the state held to the same standard? Because the defendant is the appellant and he lost in the trial court. So he had to preserve issues in order for them to be in front of this court. That's what Rule 10 says, that the defendant has to make the argument to the trial court. The trial court has to rule on it in order for it to be properly before this court. There is not a similar argument about um, the appellee. And in fact, our Supreme Court has said that the appellee can make any argument that's supported by the record in support of the ruling. That's what it says in Blackwell v. Austin, where it says that the ruling is what is important, not the reason that is assigned to That was a civil case, is that correct? Um, State v. Blackwell is a criminal oh, case. Oh, I thought you said Blackwell v. Austin. Sorry, Blackwell and Austin. Okay. I apologize, Your Honor. All right, looking at the video, what timestamp can you give us that says this is where um, defendant is free to leave and a reasonable person would realize he is free to leave? What, what's that, that timestamp? Uh, that is 4.23 or maybe a little bit before that when the officer says, all right, I see you got some charges in the past. You're on probation. So the officer at that point has given the defendant back his documents and he's warned him about the speeding. And he's, the defendant is not handcuffed. The defendant's passenger is still in the car. The second officer is nowhere near the defendant. 
The defendant is, there have been no weapons drawn. There, um, the tone of voice of everyone involved is completely conversational. And the tone of voice never changed, right? It was still the same conversational tone of voice throughout? Um, yes, I would say it got perhaps more conversational when the defendant asked if the officer knew his cousin. Um, sorry. Um, yes, Your Honor, I would agree. That the so, so I guess what language, other than handing the documents back and a switch from talking about speeding to being on probation, What indication in tone, body language change, anything like that would bolster the state's position that based on the totality of the circumstances, this was no longer a seizure? Um, or that defendant, to, to use the, the phrase that the defendant, a reasonable person would feel free to leave. I think that Hein says that generally that marks the end of the stop, is giving back the documents and ceasing to discuss the, the issue with the defendant, which I, I take the point that the documents are given back before the officer finishes talking about the speeding, but that's, I mean, that that is not really, I don't think that's relevant. I think that the point at which the officer stops talking about the speeding and the defendant has all of his things that is when a reasonable person could believe that they were free to say, no, I don't want to answer this question. I'm going to leave. Is that okay? And that's the, where we would apply the United States versus Mendenhall factors. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Yes. And as I just went through, um, those Mendenhall factors are all on the side of the state. There's no weapons displayed. There's no touching of the defendant. They haven't touched the defendant in any way. Um, the, well, he's patted him down. No, he's patted him down after he has already returned all the items and said, discussed with him about the speeding. He didn't pat him down until after that. Right, but doesn't the, if the question is, does, under Mendenhall, does the person feel free to leave under the totality of the circumstances? during that period of time, assuming arguendo, the, the original traffic stop, the reason for it had ended, and this is just, as I understand your argument, this is just a consensual interaction on the side of the road at night. Doesn't the fact that the police officer is patting him down and touching him, doesn't that come into play under those factors that we consider? No, you aren't. The, the thing that's important is what, at, at that moment, Sure, he does, he does pat him down later, but at the moment in which the officer switches from discussing the speeding to the probation, he's not touched him in any way, and that's the point at which this court has to decide whether a reasonable person would feel free to leave. But isn't Mendenhall, doesn't Mendenhall tell us we have to look at the totality of the circumstances? Sure, the totality of the circumstances. And the cir totality doesn't end, it's not the totality of the circumstances when he gives it back, it's the totality of the circumstances as the whole thing plays out, isn't it? Um, yes, but I think, I think that it's, it's limited. <laughs> there are different phases to the interaction. And so at the point in which the officer stops talking about the speeding and starts talking about the probation, the, the, the mission of the traffic stop, as in dealing with the speeding, is 
concluded. Well, and so, I, I don't understand this argument because if, if the only thing that matters is that one moment in time after he's hand, given him the warning and handed him back the documents, if two minutes later the officer started screaming at him and started doing all of these other things, I mean, those would then change the totality of the circumstances analysis of whether Mr. Mua felt, oh, sorry, whether a reasonable person would feel free to leave or not. Isn't that right? Um, yes, because I, I suppose a consensual encounter could then redevelop into a seizure. So it would matter in that sense, but it, it matters if at the time that the officer starts talking to him about the unrelated things, if he's no longer seized and the stop is, no, is not extended and the consent is entirely valid to support the search that occurred. The return of documents isn't some magic wand that law enforcement has to say, okay, that's the end of the stop. Now, now there's a clear line since I handed documents over. It still goes into our considerations, right? Yes, Your Honor. So to the extent historically handing back over the documents has signaled the end of a stop, well, if officers are using it in this way as just a, hey, let's keep talking, here's your stuff, I'm going to keep asking you stuff, then doesn't that basically eliminate our consideration of that as an ending point in the general scheme of things? No, Your Honor. And it's not being used in the same manner? No, Your Honor. It's being used as a way to continue on with the conversation? No, it is not. It, it is still a relevant consideration because the, the inquiry is always an objective inquiry. It's not about the officer's motivations. That's what um, State v. McClendon from our Supreme Court holds. That well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay, Your Honor. Um, assuming I agree with you that it is a relevant consideration, but isn't it just one of the considerations when we're looking at the totality of the circumstances under Mendenhall? Yeah, the, the returning of the, the documents? Yes. yes, Your Honor, that is one of all of the circumstances, yes, that is the relevant test. And that, and that being the case, isn't it also part of the relevant test that he's patting him down, he's asking him other questions, all of these things are part of the totality of the circumstances that under Mendenhall we should consider as to whether a relevant, whether a reasonable person would objectively believe they're, they're free to leave. No, Your Honor, just because of the, the sequence of the events there, it's just, the question is, at the moment that the officer has switched over from discussing the speeding, is the defendant or would a reasonable person at that moment feel free to leave? And things How that can happen afterward that? cannot affect what his, his perception, or not his perception, I apologize, what a reasonable person's belief would be at that time. Things that have happened afterward can't be used to change what a person would have believed at the time prior. How can we compartmentalize these that, things that are occurring 15 to 17 seconds apart? How can we compartmentalize those in a Mendenhall analysis? Your Honor, I think this case is a little bit unique, well, not maybe not now, but unique compared to the cases in that we have the, the video, so we are able to see a matter of seconds about how long each thing is taking, but that is the way that all of the cases deal with this question, is to take it step by step by step of what happens and, and what, what the relevant actors, objectively speaking, would have been reasonably 
uh, believing at that time. Well, but under the older cases where we didn't have the video and we were relying upon, and in the state's favor, we say that, you know, the um, trial judge is in a better position to review all of those kinds of things. But in those cases, don't we have testimony about this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened, which if the people are testifying truthfully should approximate what we're seeing on a video that we now have and all these cases are now on video, I believe, or most of them are because officers are now wearing video cameras. Absolutely, Your Honor. The testimony would do the exact I don't want to say the exact same thing, but a similar thing to the video. However, I think what would probably be missing from that testimony would be exactly the length of time that those things took. So, the so it's the state's position that we can't take in that we can't take into account the length of time those things took because we can now see it. No, not at all. That that's not that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is that the video just makes more apparent the fact that the situation is rapidly evolving and that that doesn't that doesn't change the fact that you still have to look at it at each moment in time as far as what has happened up until that point so I, I think perhaps maybe what your honor is looking for here is the totality of the circumstances includes everything that's happened up until that point so at each point new things are added Yeah, I guess where I'm struggling with your argument is that the totality of the circumstances that we're supposed to apply in Mendenhall ends when he gives him the documents back and says, speeding, you know, 35 is 35. I know it used to be 55 here, but you've been here a long time. Gives him the documents back. I'm trying, I'm struggling with the state's analysis that the fact that we don't look at anything past that in determining whether or not this is consensual, while yet you're citing Mendenhall that talks about the totality of the circumstances. Right, Your Honor, and, and I think, I think that Mendenhall, it, it obviously, it is a totality of the circumstances test, but I think understood in there is of the circumstances to each relevant analytical point, um, which I grant is not stated in the case, but. Can I shift topics momentarily to ask about something that hasn't come up yet? Yes. Um, so as I understand it, Mr. Mua gave uh, notice at the end of the plea and sentencing hearing of his intent to appeal the motion to suppress ruling. Is that? No, Your Honor. He gave notice of appeal. He did not give notice of his intent to appeal. Okay. So then is it the state's position that if he had given a notice of appeal specifically with respect to the motion to suppress at the end of that hearing, the plea and sentencing hearing, that that would have been sufficient? He couldn't have given notice of appeal, but he could have given notice of intent to appeal, I, I guess, at that point. The, the rule in Reynolds is just that he has to give notice of intent to appeal before um, he enters his guilty plea. And um, he did not do that at any point. And so, I don't see any reason why it couldn't have been at that hearing, but a notice of appeal would have been ineffective and would have potentially created confusion with whether the case could be continued. Well, but that's what I'm confused about is there was 
he pled guilty. There was no plea agreement. There's one plea and sentencing hearing. Mm -hmm. And I want to understand the state's position where, as to when he would have had to given that notice in order to, um, in the state's position, be afforded the right of appeal under the statute. While he was giving his, doing the plea colloquy. So earlier in yeah. that hearing, but at that Prior to hearing. pronouncement of sentence, yes. Um, and I just, just want to cover very, very briefly, um, because of that, Your Honor, because of the failure to make the plea conditional, his, his convictions rest on the guilty plea, not on the validity of the interlocutory order. And so review, reviewing that order or not is irrelevant to the conviction. And that is what Reynolds says, which is that the guilty plea waives any constitutional violations that were antecedent to it. Um, I see I'm out of time. Um, thank you, Your Honors, and um, I ask that you affirm the judgments of the trial court. Thank you, ma'am. We'll go back to the defendant. If I heard correctly, the state argued that <clears throat> the driver's pulled out of the vehicle, the colloquy begins between he and the officer. It starts with about speeding and quickly pivots away from speeding to other topics. Right. If I'm understanding the state correctly, they're saying at that pivot point, when it pivots from the topic of speeding to other topics, that's the point at which the seizure ends, at which a reasonable person would have felt free to go. There is no logical basis for that argument because the officer ordered the driver out of the vehicle. It was an order. The state acknowledges in its brief it was an order. It was not optional. The driver had to get out. And he had to get out for one purpose, based on what the officer said, which was to talk to him. Right? Talk to him. Come out and talk to me, is what he said before he reached his hand through the open window and unlocked the door for him. Right? They get seconds later to the back of the car. The officer makes his comments about speeding. Got to slow down, 35, 35, right? I know it used to be 50. Got to slow down, 35, 35, right? Those are just statements to the driver. There has been no talking to me yet, right? He hasn't asked any questions. He hasn't received any answers, right? So at that point, Right, the one reason for which this driver was ordered out of his car, right, that hasn't come to fruition yet. There has been no talking to the officer about anything. Right, so on the one hand, the driver is complying with the officer's order, still waiting for the officer to do that which he said he was going to do, which was have a conversation, right? come out and talk to me. But nonetheless, the state is trying to say, well, before that conversation happens, before the two even talk to each other, he's free to leave. And that doesn't make any sense. How could a reasonable person feel free to leave if he's complying with an officer's order and still waiting for the substance of that order to come to fruition, for him to talk to that officer? It hadn't happened yet at that point. So there'd be no way a reasonable person would have felt free to leave. Now, as far as the, the new arguments about having an objectively reasonable basis to perform the, the, I guess, to perform the frisk based on safety concerns. 
even though I think it's clear from the transcript, Sergeant Tryon said he had no safety concerns. The state is arguing, well, objectively, based on the fact of probation, it could have been objectively reasonable to perform the frisk for weapons. I would say, number one, to answer the, the court's question to the state, that you know, an appropriate sanction would be to dismiss or not consider that argument uh, under Rule 37. But uh, frankly, I don't understand what the point of that argument is, right? The frisk happened after consent was requested and given, right? So the frisk doesn't factor into the totality analysis of at the time request the consent was requested and given, would a reasonable person have felt free to go, right? That analysis does not require looking into the future, right? It requires an assessment of the circumstances that existed at that point in time. So whether or not there was some object objectively reasonable basis uh, to perform a safety-related frisk, I don't understand why that would be relevant here at all. And to that end, to you did not come prepared to argue that issue, correct? No, no, Your Honor, no, no. And you had approximately 20 minutes to, to think on your feet without the real benefit of, of legal research and, and preparation, correct? Correct, Your Honor. Thank you. Correct. Uh, and then lastly, the, you know, the, the issue about, uh, yes, you know, we have case law that says generally the return of the documents signals the end uh, of, an, of a, a traffic stop seizure. But you know, we have this, uh, I would call it a problem that sort of plagues appellate practice for us all. Is, you know, we, we take snippets from cases that work in our favor, we remove them from them, their context and, and try to use them in ways that in their context, you know, clearly they were not meant to mean, right? Each case that says generally uh, you know, the return of the document signals the end of the encounter then goes on to clarify that you know the question here is a totality of the circumstances argument right so although generally right we all know from practical experiments experience yeah generally the return of the documents signals the end because generally when the officer returns the, your documents during a routine traffic stop the return of that documents is accompanied by some sort of clear indication that the stop is over right Here's your stuff back, here's your ticket, here's your court date, or here's your stuff back. I'm letting you off with a warning this time. You know, it's the holidays, I'm being nice. Just be careful out there, be safe. We don't wanna, you know, have to cross paths again, right? Usually, generally, that's what happens, right? But again, you know, a ruling for the state in this case under these kind of facts is that kind of stealthy encroachment on constitutional rights that we have to be watchful for because it provides a blueprint for officers like Sergeant Tryon to take that generally applicable rule, right, and manipulate it in the way that it was manipulated here to try to put drivers in uncomfortable circumstances where, yes, they're not being barked at, they're not have, no one's waving a gun in their face, they're not handcuffed, right, but they're being put intentionally into a situation where they would feel, I would say, subtly compelled to agree to the request for the search, right? It's, you, you watch the video and you can see it's, it's almost as, I'm sure Sergeant Tryon has got plenty of courtroom experience and he's seen many cross, been subject to many cross-examinations, right? He's using, you know, pretty standard trial lawyer tactics, asking soft questions, getting the witness into this 
uh, rhythm of, of providing quick one-word answers. And oh, oh, and you wouldn't mind if I search your car, would you? Right. He sets them up, and he gets the result that he was hoping for. Is there and anything in the record related to either his the details of his training and experience, or I'm sure, or, or credit, or you know, assuming he had credits more or less about the use of this type of procedure? Do we have anything in the record that suggests that this is a pervasive procedure or any, or is the record just that this was a, a one-off approach by this officer in this instance that it wasn't trained as a way to get around um, these, these requirements to say, oh, I've handed over the documents so now I can do whatever I want? I believe that the extent of an answer in the transcript to that question, Your Honor, is his acknowledgement that in his experience, a driver is more likely to consent to a search of his vehicle if he is pulled out of his vehicle, right? Which explains why he pulled the driver out of the vehicle here. Pulling the driver out of the vehicle here had nothing to do with speeding, right? Were there any he factual findings made on that aspect? I don't recall any, but I'm... That the... About the... His experience that some no. more likely to... No, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I don't believe so. It was just part of his testimony, not part but of it. But to that point, Your Honor, and again, to the idea that, uh, you know, it is the court's duty to be watchful for the constitutional rights of the citizen, right, right the significance of this ruling, right? Yes, subjectively, off Sergeant Tryon's beliefs uh, do not factor in the to the totality uh, analysis, but his beliefs factor into the practical consideration of what a ruling for the state here means, right? And the Supreme Court of the United States and the other, the, the second case cited in my memo of authorities gives us another warning that's relevant here, right? They say power is a heady thing and history shows that the police acting on their own cannot be trusted. Sergeant Tryon, through his actions here, shows us one example of why that is true. And so to avoid the stealthy encroachment on those rights, I would ask, please, that this court reverse the ruling of the trial court. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We'll consider the uh, case submitted and appreciate both of the arguments. And um, we're ready to adjourn. Thank you.